KPBS On Demand is supported by MaraCal Design and Remodeling, helping homeowners with their home remodeling needs. From ADUs to custom kitchen remodels and room additions, MaraCal Design and Remodeling designs and builds your dream home. Learn more at trustyourhometous.com. L.A. health officials say put your masks back on. So what about San Diego? We're going to have a, you know, kind of a, a tale of two populations of, of those that are protected. I'm Jade Hindman with Maureen Cavanaugh. This is KPBS Midday Edition. The importance of tree shade as the climate heats up. The more shade there is in an area, the less heat the concrete, the asphalt, all of these different parts of the city end up absorbing, which means that they can stay cooler. A wildlife challenge to fireworks in La Jolla and what the legacy of Harvey Milk means to young people today. That's ahead on Midday Edition. KPBS On Demand is supported by UC San Diego, offering the online Master of Data Science program, a blend of computer science, statistics, and domain expertise. Learn more about University of California San Diego's online Master of Data Science program at omds.ucsd.edu. Health officials in Los Angeles County are urging people to wear masks indoors, regardless of their vaccination status. This reversal of the state's previous masking guidelines comes as the highly contagious Delta variant continues to spread throughout the state. The World Health Organization is making the same recommendation. Here to talk about the risks of the Delta variant is Dr. Christian Ramers, a specialist in infectious diseases who oversees clinical programs at Family Health Centers of San Diego, and he sits on the county's vaccination clinic advisory group. Dr. Ramers, welcome. Thank you, Jade, for having me. So how much of a threat does the Delta variant pose to San Diego's population, given what we know about the county's vaccination numbers? We're kind of splitting into two different groups of people. There's those that are fully vaccinated, for which the Delta variant is really not much of a risk. The vaccine seems to hold up really well, especially the data that we have for the mRNA vaccines, the Pfizer and the Moderna, that it basically can protect around 88% of the time from infection and about 96% of the time from hospitalization. So very close to the original numbers. But for those that are not vaccinated, this Delta variant, it's looking like it's probably twice as contagious as the original ancestral Wuhan strain. What can you tell us about how the Delta variant is impacting people who contract it? Well, there's a little less known about the severity of disease. There's kind of conflicting reports about it being more severe of an illness uh, versus just being more contagious and affecting more people. So we haven't quite worked that out. It's possible that it is causing a little bit more disease. Those are just from anecdotal reports from India, where this was originally described, that younger people were getting sicker in the hospital. You know, we, we need a little bit more information to make that conclusion for sure. Who is most at risk at this point? Well, it's pretty straightforward. It's people that have not been vaccinated. Um, and by my calculations, you know, we've done a great job in San Diego getting to where we are, but there's still uh, about a half a million people or more that are not vaccinated at all. And so those are going to be the vulnerable ones. We're going to have a, you know, kind of a, a tale of two populations of, of those that are protected. And I should say those, if you are fully vaccinated, even if you do get a case for the Delta variant, it looks like it's going to be just a very mild illness. That's what we've seen in Los Angeles. Uh, I just saw a report out of 123 cases there, 130. 13 or 91% of the Delta variant cases are occurring in unvaccinated people, a couple hospitalizations caused by that. And there were 10 cases in people who had been vaccinated and they did not need to go to the hospital, any of them. 
That number includes children under 12. So what advice would you give to San Diego parents about what is safe to do and not to do, uh, taking both the current infection rate and vaccination status into consideration with the Delta variant? These vaccines are very carefully studied, and uh, we're not quite ready to use them on, on children younger than age 12. So what do you have? Well, you have other mitigation strategies. Uh, you don't want to just go with one tool. Uh, COVID has, has taught us that multiple layers of prevention are the best. So if you can't be vaccinated for some reason, uh, especially because of age, then this is where masks come in. We know masks are still very effective. And then all of those old non-pharmaceutical interventions, such as uh, distancing and fresh air and staying outside rather than indoors, we need to still remember all of those other things and not forget the lessons that we've learned over this past year. Health officials in L.A. County are now urging people to wear their masks indoors just two weeks after Governor Gavin Newsom reopened California and lifted the statewide mask mandate. What would prompt you to make a similar recommendation here in San Diego County? Yeah, we're shifting into kind of a new era here where instead of the government saying this is a mandate and you have to do it, it's more of a recommendation. And that's what Los Angeles County officials are doing. And people are going to have to take more individual responsibility and make their own individual decisions. So again, indoors with poor air movement and a high concentration of people, that's a relatively risky situation. Bars and restaurants where people are, are really taking off the masks and eating, those are those are higher risk contacts. But if you're outdoors in fresh air, really, you don't need to. So I'd say people just need to make their own decisions decisions and, you know, talk to their friends and look at good information on the internet. The more contact you have with more individuals outside of your household, especially if indoors, the riskier it is. Vaccination is one way to protect yourself and a mask is another. Speaking of vaccinations, a recent study published in Nature magazine suggests the mRNA, Pfizer and Moderna vaccines may protect for years against COVID-19 when both doses are completed. What does this tell us about the possible need for booster shots and further protection in the future? Yeah, this is very encouraging news. Really pretty small study, only 41 people, and I think only about 10 or 15 had uh, had lymph node biopsies performed. But what they found were these very long lasting B cells, the ones that make antibodies at relatively high concentrations, even several months after vaccination. So it's only a guess at this point, but the guess is that the protection is going to be around for a while. You add that piece of information with the way that the mRNA vaccines are holding up against the variants, and it's really pretty good news for people that have been vaccinated. There was an announcement from a a vaccine manufacturer that everyone's going to need boosters and To be frank, they're not the ones that decide. It's the NIH and it's the CDC, the Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices, to really look at the data and see whether these are necessary. If I were to look in my crystal ball, I would say not everyone's going to need a booster, but for more vulnerable populations, such as those who are elderly, those with underlying conditions, particularly those who are immunocompromised, might be the ones that will need boosters going forward. While the number is small, there have been cases of fully vaccinated people who have still died from COVID-19-related complications. In San Diego, that number stands at three. Is this something that we should be concerned about? You know, the numbers are so small that we need to put it in perspective. Uh, I heard an expert say that you're more likely to be hit by a meteor than die of COVID after you've been vaccinated. I think out of those three, one of them actually wasn't technically fully vaccinated. So and, and all of them had underlying conditions and were older individuals. So I don't think it's something we need to worry about. I think that we we still have really good confidence in these vaccines ability to protect most people, not everybody, but most people. And then those that do get ill, the illness tends to be milder. And of course, nothing's 100%. So there are some very, very rare exceptions to that rule. Is there anything else we should know about how the Delta variant could be spreading throughout our community? 
Well, remember that throughout all of last year, we're always about two to three weeks behind. Uh, and so, you know, June 15th is when we opened up the economy and, and all the restrictions kind of went away. So we really have to keep our eyes on the ball, keep our surveillance going, and really not forget the lessons that we've learned of the last year. There are many places throughout the world that are having the worst surges they ever have had in Latin America and in Africa and in Indonesia in particular. And all those places are just a plane ride away. Um, you know, so we're, we're not past every Everything we need to keep our vigilance, keep using the tools that have worked for us and kept us safe over the last year. I've been speaking with Dr. Christian Ramers, a specialist in infectious diseases who oversees clinical programs at Family Health Centers of San Diego and sits on the county's vaccine clinical advisory group. Dr. Ramers, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much, Jade. With a heat wave scorching the West, environmentalists are looking for ways to cool things down. One way for urban areas to beat the heat is to consider the power of shade. Under the unsheltered sun, people can feel as much as 20 degrees warmer than in a shady area. The obvious way to provide this free and natural cooling is to line a neighborhood with trees, except, quite often, that's not what's happened. A new article in National Geographic outlines both the necessity of shade for a warming planet and the unequal distribution of shady, tree-lined streets in our cities, including here in San Diego. Joining me is climate scientist Alejandra Burunda, author of the article, A Shady Divide, the National Geographic magazine's cover story for July, which is out today. And Alejandra, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me. Let's talk for a minute about the power of shade. What can a shady environment help prevent when it comes to heat-related illness? Shade is just such a wonderful thing. It's, it's one of the easiest ways we have to keep our bodies cool during a hot event. I mean, you probably have this experience, right? You can you know exactly what it feels like to go stand under a tree and cool down and then you go back out into the direct sun and, and it gets a lot harder to temperature regulate, to, to keep your body at a comfortable temperature. And this is true for, for bodies and this is true for cities as well. The more shade there is in an area, the less heat the concrete, the asphalt, all of these different parts of the city end up absorbing, which means that they can stay cooler. And when you are do not have that shade cover, you have an increased likelihood of having some sort of illness because of heat if it gets too hot for too long. Isn't that right? Yeah, exactly. Heat is actually the most deadly natural disaster kind of natural disaster we face every year in the U.S. It has huge public health impacts and can be incredibly devastating to people who are living in too much heat. And the disparity is really unequal. People of color are much more likely to suffer from all kinds of heat-related illnesses and problems than wealthier people often who are white. Right. Now, in this article, in examining the benefits of trees and shade in cities, you do find a distinct divide between rich and poor across America, so that the amount of shade can almost be seen as an index of inequality. Tell us about that. Yeah. So there's been some really, really fascinating research that's been happening for a long time, but, but has kind of accelerated in the last few years, looking at the distribution of trees across different cities all throughout the U.S., and there's this really clear pattern that emerges in areas that were formerly 
redlined or kind of denied investment from the federal government over many decades in the past in a way that has continuing impacts today, there are a lot less trees. And in neighborhoods that were not redlined, there are many more, sometimes up to, you know, around 40% tree cover. So if you imagine the sky above you covered with with leaves and trees, that's a lot. That's a totally different experience. And that has a really clear impact on temperatures. The differences between these formerly redlined areas and, and not redlined areas can be over 10 degrees Fahrenheit. A lot of your article focuses on the city of Los Angeles. And what kind of statistics do we find when it comes to the shady divide throughout Los Angeles? For this story, we spent uh, quite a bit of time in different parts of South South Los Angeles and uh, other parts of the city as well. And in particular, we drove along Vermont Avenue, which cuts south to north through the city. And in some of the neighborhoods that we started in, in South and South Central LA, the tree cover was about 3%, uh, always kind of in the single digits. So that means there's basically nothing between you and, and the sunshine when you're standing on the street there. And that was mostly in neighborhoods that were formerly redlined and denied investment for many, many years and decades. And as you drove north toward Griffith Park, you started to encounter more and more trees, both on the sides of the street and in people's homes and backyards. And by the time you get up essentially to the park, there are these big, beautiful fig trees that are were planted in the early 1900s and have canopies that cover 80 feet at this point. So these big, giant, beautiful trees that create this incredibly comfortable, shady environment beneath them. And we saw people lounging, we saw dogs playing, we saw lots of people out enjoying this space in a way that was just impossible to do or much harder to do and much more dangerous to do in the places we started where there were less trees. Now, according to a study by the group American Forests, here in San Diego, we are among the 20 cities in the nation that need to plant more trees to achieve, quote, tree equity. And that group says we need to add 4 million more trees. It seems like a tremendous amount. Is that the kind of mass planting that you'd like to see happen? Yeah, that's a lot of trees. That's That would be a really big effort. Um, Los Angeles is in the process of planting tens of thousands right now. And And that's taking a huge and concerted effort that I was so wonderfully pleased and and lucky to get to to see during our reporting for this story. I mean, I I think trees and and thinking about kind of the public spaces that we inhabit more generally and how to design those in a way that takes people's comfort and safety into account is a really important project for us now, especially as climate change kind of exacerbates in the future and its impacts become become clearer. We often think of these spaces or, or over the decades, we've kind of ceded a lot of our public space, especially in California, to cars. And that was a thing that definitely happened in LA, even in areas where there were trees in the past. Often as streets got widened and parking spaces got added, public street trees got taken out. And so anything we can do to kind of keep the trees we have in good shape and to add to that and to, to really prioritize people's experiences in public spaces, I think is a, is a hugely important project. You know, as temperatures continue to rise, and of course, trees 
take time to grow and they need infrastructure to keep them watered and healthy. Do we have time to make this plan work? Yeah, that's a great question. And one that I asked a lot of the people working on this question in Los Angeles and Miguel Vargas, who is one of the people I spent quite a bit of time with, had a great answer to this. He was just thinking really far ahead. He's like, climate change isn't going to stop. This is only going to become a bigger problem. And if we don't do it now, do we want to be looking at the world we're going to inhabit in 30 years? Like I'm doing this for the future, even though we know it's a slow project. And I just thought that was such a wonderful way to look at the question. Like, of course, this isn't going to be enough. Of course, this isn't going to have impacts tomorrow. But the way that we address climate change and its risks has to be forward thinking. It has to take this really long view. And so the things that we do now, like plant trees, will have hopefully some really important benefits 10, 20, 30, 40 years down the line. My guest, Alejandra Barun, does Peace, A Shady Divide, is in the July issue of the National Geographic magazine. It's available online at napgeo.com slash race and on newsstands. And Alejandra, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. It was really great to talk with you. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Jade Hindman with Maureen Cavanaugh. Fireworks could be returning to La Jolla on the 4th of July if organizers can overcome a legal challenge from people concerned about sea lions. KPBS environment reporter Eric Anderson has details. La Jolla Point is one of those rare places where nature offers people a glimpse of life usually tucked out of view. Sea lions love to haul out on the rocky shoreline, and that delights the thousands of people who walk along the point each day. The sea lions are comfortable enough here to give birth and to raise their young. Pups can't swim right after birth, and they don't do it well for several months, but they can be seen snuggling and playing with their moms on the rocks. Most of the adoring crowds keep their distance, but some like to sneak closer for a better look or picture. You know, people are often mostly surprised that, that, that you know, that, that there's so little guidance and there's so little oversight of this area. Carol Toye is encouraged that San Diego's promised better signage and a more visible ranger presence, but the Sierra Club worries about another threat. We are greatly alarmed about the fireworks. Richard Miller says local boosters want to bring back a 4th of July fireworks display, something that was a staple here for decades. Those fireworks will be launched from the park right beside the sea lion rookery. If they do have fireworks here, that will flush every single sea lion off the point and their pups 
And once again, there's the opportunity to, that we lose an entire generation of sea lions just from, just from having fireworks here. But La Jolla boosters say the concerns are unfounded. Deborah Marengo is the director of the La Jolla Community Fireworks Foundation. She says the fireworks display is an important community building event. Everyone here in La Jolla loves where we live, our community, our environment. If we ever thought that we were doing any type of harm by celebrating our Independence Day uh, by shooting off fireworks, that show would not go on. But the show hasn't actually happened in La Jolla since 2017. Her group fought off legal challenges in 2010 and 2014 that raised concerns about the environmental impact of the show. There was really no merit. There was no proof that um, the fireworks, which happens one day a year on July 4th and is a 25-minute show, really has never caused any harm. The lawsuits never canceled the fireworks display, but Marengo says the legal fight impacted fundraising. There simply wasn't enough money for shows in 2018 and 2019. And in 2019, beginning of 20, some members of the community wanted to bring it back for 2020. And we had been working on fundraising and we were ready to go with the 2020 show and then the pandemic hit. Moringo says the show is under fire from another lawsuit that she says is the same as earlier challenges. But the Animal Protection and Rescue League sees it differently. Attorney Brian Peace, who sits on the group's board, filed suit in Superior Court. There's a marine mammal rookery right there. Which, which has only been since 2019 declared under federal law to exist. So prior to 2019, it wasn't the same legal landscape. So now we have the, the official designation of it being a sea lion rookery. Whether National Marine Fisheries Service is going to enforce that or not, I don't know. Peace says violating a federal law is seen as an unfair business practice in California, and that's the legal avenue they're pursuing. The National Marine Fisheries Service has no opinion on the legal action or the fireworks show. It could be many months before the lawsuit is resolved. Eric Anderson, KPBS News. When wind-driven wildfires break out, flying embers can travel nearly a mile, sparking new fires and destroying homes. One way to cut down that risk is by retrofitting house vents to make them ember resistant. In 2019, the San Diego County Board of Supervisors approved a $1.5 million program to help homeowners pay for vent retrofits. But now that program has been abandoned and the money diverted elsewhere. Joining me to explain is iNewsource reporter Cami Von Canel. And Cami, welcome to the program. Thank you. Now, in what areas of the county would homeowners have been eligible for these county grants? Yes, so a proposal the county put together would have focused these grants in areas of east and north county at high fire risk, uh, prioritizing Palomar Mountain, Mount Laguna, and the Lilac Fire Burn area. Um, And these people would have been eligible for a grant to cover up to half of the cost of upgrading the vents or up to uh, $1,150. Company who produces the vents told me that the average cost of buying and installing these vents in San Diego County is around $2,300. As I understand it, the vent program was abandoned by the county before any money was actually spent. Where did the money go? 
Around a third of that one and a half million has already been spent, uh, mostly on the purchase of two masticators, which are giant equipment to kind of a chew up and clear brush, like alongside roads. The rest is already has already been allocated to other programs. Uh, the most of it will go towards expanding the county's Knox Box program. And the Knox Box is a box affixed on people's homes that gives emergency responders access to spare home keys in case of a medical or, or fire emergency. Now, when we talked with wildfire prevention experts on this program, they've always mentioned the importance of installing ember-resistant vents to slow the spread of wildfire. Why was this county reimbursement program abandoned? Yeah, the problem that the county encountered was that they went out to look for a contractor to run the program and they didn't get any bids on the proposal. And the contractors who were potentially interested told them that they thought that there wouldn't be enough interest out there in a partial reimbursement. So county staffers made a calculated decision to spend the money elsewhere on projects that would have the most impact on the most people is, is what they told me. And um, I spoke to, to a couple people at Cal Fire and the county and, and Deputy Chief Dave Nissen told me that his focus point is providing safe evacuation corridors. Now, they didn't dismiss the importance of the vents. They said that they would continue to emphasize the importance of vents and other sort of home hardening upgrades uh, to people in various education programs. And you also spoke with a woman who runs a vent retrofit company who told you her company could have been tapped for this program. Yeah, so Kelly Burkumpus co-founded this company called Brandguard Vents, and she said she communicated with the county two years ago when they were first putting this project proposal together about the cost of vents, um, and she didn't know the program had been abandoned. Um, She said her, her business is spiking right now and that there's this growing push to focus on home hardening, both at the state level, at the insurance company level. So here she is. You've got, you know, local jurisdictions, state jurisdictions recognizing the problems with ventilation, and you've also got insurance companies that are recognizing the huge risk of ventilation in a home during a wildfire. And meanwhile, SDG&E is helping homeowners in the area of the Sunrise PowerLink to do exactly the same kind of ember-resistant retrofitting. How is that going? Yeah, so the Sunrise PowerLink grants can cover a variety of things, including defensible space, structure hardening, and the ember-resistant vents. Ember-resistant vent grant has been available since since 2018 as a priority, and around 600 homeowners have installed vents through, through that program. But it's only people who live near the Sunrise Power Link who are eligible for that grant. Now, state government is putting together a plan to help homeowners to harden their homes against wildfire. Would that include installing new vents? So there will be around $25 million coming through CAL FIRE and CAL OES, the Office of Emergency Services, starting in January of next year to help people harden their homes. Now, the details aren't available yet on exactly what that would mean, but uh, vents are one of the primary ways to harden your home. So, um, you know, we'll keep our eyes on that. Okay, as the state moves forward with a program to harden homes against wildfire, there will probably be a lot of areas in San Diego eligible for some help. How much of San Diego is considered vulnerable to wildfire? 
So uh, according to the county's hazard mitigation plan, roughly 87% of the people of the population is at some risk for wildfire, and that includes moderate risk. Um, but in, in, the, in the unincorporated areas, 91% of people are at very high fire risk. Um, and so countywide, that's 78,000 homes that are at um, high to extreme fire risk. I've been speaking with iNews Source reporter Cami Van Canel. Cami, thank you so much. Thank you. Cami is an emerging journalist who covers the backcountry for our partners at iNews Source. To learn more, visit iNewsSource.org. A recent study from Lending Tree says San Diego has some of the most cost-burdened homeowners in the country, with about 40% of homeowners spending more than a third of their income on mortgages and other associated costs. So how will rising home costs impact that? Joining me is Philip Molnar, real estate and business reporter for the San Diego Union-Tribune. He's been covering this issue and the recent study. Philip, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. So homeowners in San Diego are among the most cost burdened in the nation. Where do we rank? So we're third highest in the nation behind Los Angeles and Miami. And this lending tree study was sort of interesting because it it uses the most recently available data, but it was for 2019 is the most recently available. So this basically tells us going into the pandemic, things were already pretty rough if you owned a home in San Diego. So we're going to have to wait and see what happened after prices exploded in the last year and a half. Exactly. As you you just mentioned, a large number of San Diegans were already spending more than a third of their income on mortgages before the pandemic. Housing prices shot up in 2020, and they are still soaring to all-time highs. Uh, But the income-to-housing debt ratio isn't expected to change much. Why is that? Well, income did go up for a lot of people that were able to work stay-at-home jobs during the pandemic. However, we also know unemployment reached a a record high in San Diego of around 15% at one point during the pandemic. So if you look at income to, you know, spending on mortgages and all that stuff, it might be better for some people coming out of this pandemic, but it's also going to be bad for some people. So we're still waiting to see how it's all going to shake out. What I've heard from some housing analysts, and it sounds super cold, but the people that couldn't afford a house before the pandemic sure as heck can't afford one now. So we might just, but when we look at these numbers, we might just be looking at a dwindling home ownership, but maybe the people that actually got homes might be doing better than they were before on their cost payments. We just kind of have to wait and see. Hmm. And let's talk about that a bit more, uh, about lower-income homeowners and those who may have lost income due to business closures. How are they impacted by this? A lot of low-income people were hurt the very worst during COVID. We have a study from the San Diego Association of Governments, and they found that nearly 40% of jobs that paid below $27,000 a year, that's around $15 an hour, those were lost by April. But if you look at jobs that were, you know, paid twenty-seven thousand up to sixty thousand, only six percent of those jobs were lost, and any jobs that paid more than sixty thousand a year, only three percent were lost. So we can see from these numbers that during the pandemic, low-income people were hurt the hardest by this stuff. So they probably are so far outside their chance to buy a home at this point that. 
you know, we don't even know if this study will change that much because if they couldn't get a house before, it's going to be way harder now with prices that have gone up more than 20% in San Diego County in the last 12 months. You know, this really is exposing disparities between the wealthy and those who bring in a lower income, and that some who are wealthy are are coming out of this pandemic actually spending less on housing than they were before. Can you talk about that? Before the pandemic started, about 31% of homeowners were spending 20% or less of their monthly income on housing costs. And if you think about that, you know, there's a comparative study I'm looking at at the moment with renters, but a lot of people in San Diego are, are spending way more than 20% of their income on housing. So we can see that homeowners were doing much better than the general population even before the pandemic. So there's a very strong possibility with mortgage rates being so low that some of those homeowners were able to refinance and get their monthly costs even lower than they already were. So, yeah, we're going to see a huge disparity coming out of the pandemic. For people who recently bought a home, is there a point where the high cost of housing cancels out the benefit of those low mortgage rates? Yeah, definitely. Because, you know, we hear a lot from real estate agents, and of course, it's always buy now, buy now. But, you know, mortgage rates are so crazy low right now that one of the thoughts is I need to get into a house to take advantage of these. But if you look at the median price home in San Diego County, one of the things is like, yeah, interest rates are low, but if you break it all down, you're still paying like 130,000 more for a down payment on a median price home. It's just, it's bonkers because even though that monthly payment might be a little more manageable and not look as bad, coming up with that down payment is extreme. So I've been talking to real estate agents throughout the pandemic, you know, and one of my biggest questions is, who's affording these houses? And a lot of times it is those younger millennial couples, but they're getting help from their parents. So that down payment is sort of artificial in some ways because, you know, it's it's more of an anecdotal story, but that's just what I keep hearing over and over. So it's, it's not like that person that just bought that house for a really high amount actually had that down payment money sitting there. I mean, there's only so many tech billionaires and millionaires around to buy houses. So that might be interesting to see how that plays out in the long term. Mm-hmm. Are renters feeling the same cost burden for housing? You know, not really as far as renters go. Rent prices in San Diego, roughly, they're up about 5% in a year. That's still rough if you're a renter, you know. But in the past, we've seen rent prices go up more than... up to 8% in a year. So at least in that regard, you know, we're seeing that 5%. And of course, especially downtown, if you're looking to rent in East Village, especially, or even some of the new complexes in Otay Ranch that I've seen and some in Mission Valley, a lot of them are just trying to get people to sign new leases. So they're offering up to four to six weeks free on rent. And a lot of times they're actually lowering that security deposit. You know, a lot of times if you move into like kind of a junky apartment in Golden Hill or something, they're like, okay, we're going to need a month and a half of rent. So you're, you're shelling out like $2,000 just to get into a place. But a lot of those places are lowering the security deposit. I've heard security deposits as low as $500 in Mission Valley. So for once we can kind of say it might not be so bad for renters right now, if you're looking at all things considered. I've been speaking with Philip Molnar, who covers real estate and business for the San Diego Union-Tribune. Philip, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. 
Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. This is KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Maureen Cavanaugh with Jade Heineman. San Diego is preparing for its own celebration of Pride Month in July, and one of the California LGBTQ icons always honored during Pride is the late Harvey Milk. Milk became the state's first openly gay elected official when he won a seat on San Francisco's Board of Supervisors in 1977, and he was tragically assassinated a year later by one of his colleagues on the board. Milk is a towering figure in queer history, but for many people coming of age today, their first exposure to Milk and his story is not from history books, but from the 2008 Oscar-winning film Milk. We sent reporter Ryan Levy to City College of San Francisco to find out what Milk means to young people today. All right, Brianna Bahar Hansen welcomes their students to Introduction to LGBT Studies and introduces them to today's topic. Harvey Milk, the life and journey of one of the greatest visionaries in the LGBTQ community. And they're surprised when they find out that some in the class, like second-year student Matthew Foley, know nothing about the gay San Francisco icon. I haven't even heard of him before today, which I feel kind of bad about. And most of the students who have heard of him have just seen the Sean Penn movie and really don't know much else. At least one student, third-year Miranda LeBounty, is a little more familiar with Milk's legacy. I grew up kind of with Harvey Milk mentioned in the same sentence as Martin Luther King. But even she's pretty hazy on the specifics. And the fact it was so recent, I always assumed Milk was like 50, 60 years ago, and that it was only 40 years ago he was assassinated. Jesus. Like, our parents, our parents were alive and walking around during that time. Hearing the details of Milk and Moscone's assassinations for the first time, the students are especially disturbed by the fact that former San Francisco supervisor Dan White only served five years in prison for the killings. If Harvey Milk somehow killed Dan White and Moscone, he would be life in prison. But because it was a white, a straight man doing it. If it were a black guy or a trans or trans person or, or even just a woman, yeah, like that person would be institutionalized or still in jail to this day. That last voice belongs to Michaela Kendrick, and she's touching on something that a lot of students brought up during the discussion: race and gender identity privilege. Not just for Dan White, but for Harvey Milk too. This idea of intersectionality, the way that a person's sexuality combines with their race and gender and socioeconomic status and other identities, is something that young queer people talk about a lot, and it impacts how they view someone like Milk. I do connect with him in some sense because he is a hero, and I will never sit there and say that he's not a hero because he literally died for us. But at the same time, he comes from a different background, and I don't think he like encapsulated everybody. LaShawn Purcell says he can connect with Milk because both of them are cisgender males. But for Purcell, who's black, 
that's where the similarities end. You know what I mean? There's a lot of other trans women of color that couldn't necessarily do what Harvey Milk did because of who he is. But even while they look critically at how Milk's privileges allowed him to do what he did, students like Michael Thomas still recognize the kind of impact Milk had. If it wasn't for him, this class wouldn't have been able to even be in college. That's a fact. After class, I asked Professor Brianna Bahar Hansen why they thought the students, some of whom had never heard of Milk before, still seemed to feel a connection with him. Many people are living that experience where they're marginalized, they're vulnerable, they're, they're not welcome within their spaces. Even here in San Francisco, there's been just some very heart-wrenching stories of not being accepted by families. And really, the issues that Harvey Milk talking about in the 70s still so apply to their lives today. And because those issues of oppression are still present for these young people, Harvey Milk and his legacy still matter to them, even if they only just learned about him. I'm Ryan Levy. Jackson, California is a quaint gold rush era town with brick buildings on its main street. It's pretty quiet, except when you walk into Rosebud's Cafe, which has just reopened its doors as the pandemic wanes. Rosebud's is a place that shouts its values from its bright green walls, huge family portraits, and tons of posters and flyers announcing programs for the arts, supporting local homeless initiatives, and advocating for LGBTQ rights. For the series California Foodways from 2019, Lisa Morehouse tells us this place has become a refuge for people who don't always feel accepted. Rosebuds is like a beam of light. Mary's son Ty works the front of the house like he's done for nearly 30 years. I started on the cash register when I was six years old. It's like my sibling, Rosebuds. It's like the fourth child. <laughs> Mary says the family really started supporting LGBTQ issues when her daughter Megan came out as a lesbian in high school. In this community, it was really scary. She worried her daughter would be bullied. But that was just the beginning. Because Ty stood out even more. There was the controversial neon pink baseball cap, the short hair dyed purple that provoked a teacher. She pulled me aside on the way out to P.E. one day and told me that I was ruining my life. I knew, I knew then that she was wrong. But what I didn't know was how those, her saying that would still be a part of my consciousness 30 years later. And that's obscene. I mean, I was just a fat little girl. I was just trying to be okay. Because he didn't know it then, but Ty is a trans man. Playing with his look, he learned about himself. There was a mohawk, clothes cut up and pieced back together, decorated with safety pins. For me, my parents giving us the room to express ourselves through our physical aesthetic was a, was a matter of my survival. What else would I have done? If I couldn't cut my hair, I maybe would have been cutting myself. I have Ashley for four. But since he was a kid, Ty's moved through the restaurant with ease and authority. Today, he's wearing a kilt, his full red beard braided. Were you up for Daffodil Hill this weekend? Yeah. Awesome. Did you go already? One of the neat things about having grown up in a restaurant is that I was able to feel powerful. School never felt, felt safe, and that's not healthy for our brains. As high school began, Ty knew he was attracted to women. Ty started the Gay Straight Alliance at Amateur High School, 
and it caused uh, just an uproar in the community. It was just like, I did not go to Glee, okay? <laughs> that was not my life. Uh, school was rough. Yeah, his tires were slashed on campus. I mean, I have been followed home. I have been run off the highway. I had dog smeared in the front seat of my car parked in front of my childhood home. It was, it was difficult times. Oh, I mean, I had friends whose parents grounded them from me. So it didn't seem unusual that there were people that weren't interested in dining with us. In a school of only 800 students, Ty says he collected over 100 signatures in support of starting the club. As high school wound down, Ty still didn't know the word transgender, but he did something really dramatic for a new teenage driver. I just couldn't stop myself. I cut my driver's license in half right over the gender marker. Soon after going off to college, Ty sat his parents down and said, If it's all right, you know, I think I'd like to be your son now. After college in Santa Cruz and a few years in Sacramento, Ty returned to Jackson. He loves the country and the rolling hills of Amador County and wanted to be part of his family's farm-to-fork efforts at Rosebud's. And coming home meant returning to the sanctuary of the restaurant. I have experienced a great deal of trauma at points in my life where my brain was still developing. He says he deals with PTSD and agoraphobia and went through periods when he couldn't work. One night after closing, Rosebuds hosts a potluck for the Tri-County LGBT Alliance, which puts on a pride parade in nearby Murphy's. Ty's mom, Mary, welcomes the guests. It's people like you that have made the world safer for my baby. And so I appreciate you. If you're ever scared or worried, just know that there's someone out there in the world who appreciates and from the bottom of my heart. Thank you for being an ally or for being out and welcome. 16-year-old Miles goes to the youth group Ty started in the region, but is attending the potluck for the first time. I'm basically here because, like, I think meeting a lot of people who are going through the same thing helps, like, you know, develop, like, who I'm going to be when I grow up. Miles's mom is here in support, but struggling with pronouns. I love her to death, so... <laughs> Keep correcting, don't worry. <laughs> so whatever Miles decides to be, that's its choice. Her, his. <laughs> I still have to get used to this. No worry, we'll get through. With help from gatherings like this one at Rosebud's, Ty says that's what this space is all about. We try to use the bounty that comes through the cafe and reinfuse it right back into Jackson. You know, the saying, we are the salt of the earth, I never understood what that meant. But uh, it was explained to me to be that we have to flavor this space. Ty says no one should hold back their flavor. I'm Lisa Morehouse in Jackson. And just an update on the story, like most restaurants during the pandemic, Rosebud's had to pivot to limited seating, to-go menus, and outdoor seating. But now Mary and Ty are back and are hoping to welcome back groups by September. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, 
including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com.